This is the sidebar for the week of March 17, 2017. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. C-SPAN's The Sidebar goes beyond the headlines of the stories shaping the conversation in Washington and across the country with interviews that provide background and context to the issues and events dominating the news cycle. Our guest this week is Jeffrey Rosen. He's the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. As the Senate Judiciary Committee prepares for a Supreme Court hearing this week, we talked with him about the evolution and significance of the confirmation process. You only have a few opportunities in a generation to really probe the constitutional views of a nominee. It's the only opportunity we'll ever have to to really hear directly from Judge Gorsuch on his views on the Constitution. So let's all play close attention. Jeffrey Rosen is the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, just across from Independence Hall. Jeff Rosen, thanks very much for being with us. Wonderful to be with you. Let's talk about the confirmation process and take a step back. How has it changed over the years and why? It's changed a lot. Uh, before 1916, uh, the Judiciary Committee considered nominations uh, secretly behind closed doors. 1916 was the confirmation of Louis Brandeis uh, 100 years ago. And that was the first time at which there were outside witnesses who testified. But the nominee did not testify then, although there were 19 days of public hearings and Brandeis waited longer for uh, a hearing than any nominee before Merrick Garland, uh, that was a watershed. But uh, still, uh, the first public confirmation hearing was 1925. That was the time that Harlan Fisk Stone was the first Supreme Court nominee to actually apply, uh, appear in person and uh, testify at confirmation hearings. And ever since then, the, as the confirmation hearings have become increasingly public, they've become increasingly contentious. But I think it's fair to say that they've become especially contentious uh, in the past uh, 30 or 40 years. And many people use 1987, the year that Robert Bork was nominated to the court, as a kind of watershed. I want to come back to the Bork confirmation hearings in 1987, nominated by President Reagan. But let me ask you about Merrick Garland, because Democrats continue to feel that uh, that they were robbed a seat. How unprecedented was it to have a president put up a nominee and Republicans not even hold a confirmation hearing? Well, this is a hotly debated question. Uh, listeners can hear podcasts on the question of whether it was unprecedented or not at the National Constitution Center's We the People podcast. But basically, in terms of sheer numbers, uh, Merrick Garland waited longer for a hearing than any nominee. Louis Brandeis was nominated uh, in uh, January and conferred in June 1916, and Garland surpassed that record. Um, the question of whether uh, you have to hold a hearing or not um, is also hotly contested. Those who defended the Senate's decision said that the decision not to hold a hearing itself was a exercise of the Senate's constitutional power to advise and consent to a nomination. They were basically advising that they didn't want the, nom the nomination. Democrats said you have to hold a hearing to fulfill that function. So I think it's fair to say that the Constitution itself does not definitively settle this question, which is essentially a political question because the confirmation process is inherently political. But just in terms of sheer numbers, Merrick Garland waited longer uh, for the hearing that he never got 
than any other nominee. So how does that set the stage from your standpoint for what we'll see with Judge Gorsuch, and in particular among Senate Democrats? Well, many Senate Democrats are uh, upset about uh, the fact that Merrick Garland didn't receive a hearing. They're facing tremendous pressure from their base to express that frustration or anger in opposition to Gorsuch, and some may even be tempted to mount a filibuster against Judge Gorsuch. But, uh, but the argument on the other side is that the confirmation process is inherently political. Senate Republicans have made clear that if there is a filibuster, they'll eliminate the filibuster for Supreme Court nominations. So Democrats have a series of not very good strategic decisions to make. They don't have a lot of good options about whether it's worth holding the filibuster in reserve for the next uh, nominee, uh, if Justice Kennedy were to retire and the consequences for the court could be even greater uh, or whether several of the Democrats will uh, jump ship and actually vote for Judge Gorsuch, as all previous Supreme Court nominees have managed to attract bipartisan support. We've not, to the best of my knowledge, had a Supreme Court nominee that has been voted on a strict party line vote. There's always been some crossover. So it would be consistent with precedent for Judge Gorsuch to get at least some Democratic votes, and some Republicans hope that he'll get enough votes to get to 60, so the filibuster issue won't become uh, live. So let's talk about Robert Borg. Why, in your words, was that a watershed moment for the confirmation process? I had the incredible experience as a very young intern in a very minor job uh, to be an intern on the Senate Judiciary Committee during the Borg hearings uh, working for uh, Senator Joe Biden, who was head of the Judiciary Committee. And it what was, was that like? It was amazing. It was, talk about, you know, I feel like I'm in constitutional heaven at the National Constitution Center, and that was not constitutional heaven, but it was certainly the most remarkable constitutional education, the introduction to the Constitution that a young college uh, grad, I was just out of college, could have had. It was before law school, and it was thrilling, and everything was open, and, and, and Vice President Biden, then Senator Biden, gave a really important speech that he remains proud of to this day, arguing that the Senate had not only the uh, right, but the obligation to consider the substantive constitutional philosophy of a nominee. And that was a, 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 that was a, a distinct position at the time. Before then, Congress had basically focused on qualifications defined in a narrow sense. And of course, substantive views had come up, but they weren't explicitly embraced as a reason to vote for or against the nominee. But after Senator Biden's speech, uh, Democrats felt that it was appropriate to vote against Bork because they disagreed with his constitutional philosophy, and he, was, uh, he, he, he went down to defeat. The other thing that was so dramatic about, I mean, there were many dramatic things about the hearings, but Judge Bork uh, had taken many very controversial positions as a Yale law professor and as a judge, and in the hearings, he recanted many of those uh, positions. It was called his confirmation conversion. So Democrats seized on that as an example of his uh, uh, lack of scrupulousness. Now, in his defense, I, I think it's fair to say that many of the attacks on him were, were very heated and uh, the late Senator Kennedy said that in Judge Bork's America, we would return to back alley abortions and uh, be unable to speak, uh, engaged in political dissent and so forth, essentially conflating Judge Bork's constitutional conclusions with his own political views. And the other thing that was remarkable about the Bork hearings is it mobilized for the first time in American history a series of interest groups, uh, both before and against the, before and against the, the nomination who continued to define the scope of the Supreme Court nominations ever since. So before that, um, 
you know, the public at large might evaluate the nomination vaguely, and but basically was a it was a party matter. Now, after Bork, you had groups ranging from NARAL pro-choice America to pro-life groups, uh, to civil rights groups, um, to anti-affirmative uh, action groups and colorblind groups all mobilized. And those more extreme views of the mobilized base tended to dominate the hearings, making it harder for more moderate uh, candidates to get nominated in the first place or to get crossover votes. Uh, the Bork hearings also made every nomination since then a kind of referendum on the future of Roe v. Wade because Judge Bork was uh, nominated to replace Justice uh, Lewis Powell, who'd been the swing vote on the court. And when Judge Bork went down to defeat and was eventually replaced by Justice Anthony Kennedy, Kennedy became the swing vote, which he, a position he's essentially held uh, ever since 1987, uh, making him in many ways the most influential justice. So supporters of the effort against Bork would say that it was a fight well worth having because Justice Kennedy took more moderate or more liberal positions um, than Judge Bork would have taken on a range of issues, including his decision to uphold the core of Roe v. Wade. Uh, Supporters of Judge Bork say he was really treated unfairly, his views were caricatured, and that it was that the Democrats politicized the nomination process ever since. So that's a lot to say about Bork, but it definitely was a watershed. And basically things have just been getting more and more partisan with each nomination ever since. Well, Jeffrey Rosen, you had a front row seat to that incredible moment in American history. So let me ask you one more question about Robert Bork. Why him? Why that moment? Was it because it was the second term of the Reagan presidency? Was it Robert Bork himself, his views, perhaps his role in the Saturday Night Massacre in 1973, part of the whole Watergate scandal? What was it about him that really mobilized Democrats in opposition and angered Republicans who back then felt they should have had this man on the high court? It's a very good question, because after all, just a few years before Bork's uh, defeat, uh, Justice Antonin Scalia was confirmed nearly unanimously, and uh, William Rehnquist was promoted from an associate justice to be chief justice. And both Chief Justice Rehnquist and Justice Scalia were were pretty conservative, and and and, just, and Judge Bork might not have been all that much more conservative in terms of his ultimate votes. I think it was so explosive, uh, partly because as a law professor and as a lower court judge, uh, Judge Bork had been so outspoken in criticizing the core precedents of the Warren and Burger Court's constitutional jurisprudence. He'd been very outspoken in his criticism, not only of Roe v. Wade, but of Griswold versus Connecticut, the case that recognized a right to privacy in the 1960s. Uh, uh, Senator Biden questioned Judge Bork very aggressively about the right to privacy and said, most Americans would believe we do have a right to privacy that comes from God and not government. And that exchange became so totemic that every nominee since Bork, including Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito, have said that they think that the Griswold contraceptive case was correctly decided. So it was it was partly just the fact that Judge Bork had written so much uh, criticizing so many precedents on the grounds that they were inconsistent with the jurisprudence of original understanding. He had a really big paper trail. And the other reason was that the seat was so important, just because it was the swing seat, and people felt correctly that a more conservative judge would have swung the court in a very conservative direction. On Monday, Judge Neil Gorsuch will raise his right hand and then uphold the Constitution, swear to tell the truth, and then begin his own testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee. How do you think he has been preparing for this moment, for these hearings in particular? Well, I'm... uh, 
upset that he has been doing what other nominees do, which is go through what are called murder boards. They're basically moot court arguments where uh, law clerks or lawyers uh, supporting his nomination and advising him will play act the role of senators and basically ask him the toughest questions they possibly can, and he will try to answer them. Uh, the same way the senators are engaging in these kind of murder boards and they're having their staffers play Judge Gorsuch as they rehearse their questions. Judge Gorsuch will probably have to reread a lot of his own opinions because uh, many judges write a lot of opinions and he won't have remembered everything he said. So he'll want to make sure that he is carefully prepared so that he can make sure that no statements are taken out of context. And he'll also be broadly trying to anticipate the, the, the broad lines of questions that Senate Democrats will be focusing on and have responses to them. And I think it's uh, obvious, as has been reported, that uh, the Democrats are going to be interested in making these hearings a referendum on Justice Scalia and his legacy of uh, constitutional originalism, the idea that the Constitution should be interpreted in light of its original public meaning at the time of ratification. So Judge Gorsuch will be studying Justice Scalia's decisions, trying to anticipate areas where the senators might claim that Justice Scalia was unfaithful to the original understanding of the Constitution and come up with a response to that, uh, as well as being ready to talk about his own uh, extrajudicial work, including his very interesting book about uh, assisted suicide. So if this may sound wonky, and, and it is, but it's really, it's a constant, Judge, uh, Judge Bork, I remember from those days, famously used the words, it would be a constitute, an intellectual feast to be on the Supreme Court. And he was kind of pilloried for that because it made him sound bloodless and academic rather than understanding that the court's decisions affect ordinary people. But it is, there's no question that a, any confirmation hearing is a constitutional feast, and that's why it's so great for citizens to pay really close attention to them. The, the standard rap on confirmation hearings is it's just kabuki theater. That's the cliche that's used, that uh, senators ask questions and the nominees dodge them, and we can't learn anything from them. But I don't think that's convincing. If you, if you go back and read the transcripts of the Bork hearings or read the transcripts of any recent Supreme Court nomination, you'll find a huge amount of substance. I, I Just to take one example, in Justice Breyer's confirmation hearing, Senator Metzenbaum from Ohio questioned him about his views about antitrust and said he was too pro-government. And on the court, Justice Breyer has been pretty pro-government in antitrust cases. So it's it's wonky, but it's really important. And, and rather than focusing on the theatrics, just by focusing on the substance and paying close attention to what's going on uh, in the interstices of the hearings uh, can teach people a lot. Now, I realize this is an impossible question, but uh, if anyone can answer it, you can, as the head of the <laughs> National Constitution Center, from your perch overlooking Independence Hall in Philadelphia. If our founders came back today and saw this particular process as it's unfolding, would they say, yeah, that's what we expected, or it's not quite what we thought? You know, channeling the framers is always dangerous, but there's no doubt that they experienced incredibly partisan confirmations uh, in the election of 1800, which a lot of folks know now from the great Hamilton musical. Uh, the if incoming you can afford the tickets. <laughs> right. If you, you just hear it on YouTube or on Spotify if you can. <laughs> there you yeah, go. The music's really great. But uh, the incoming Republicans led by Jefferson are, are coming in, and the outgoing Federalists led by Adams are so determined to deny them uh, the right to make a Supreme Court appointment, that the Congress actually reduces the size of the Supreme Court to, to deny Jefferson the ability to make an appointment. Um, and there are all of these uh, 
trials for uh, sedition under the Alien and Sedition Acts, and then Jefferson pardons people who are convicted by the Federalists and so forth. So it's true that they didn't have public confirmation hearings on television where the nominees testified, because as we started off by discussing, nominees didn't testify at all until the 20s. But they knew that the process was political. Now, whether people, whether you want to say that things have become even more partisan than they were then is an empirical question. Some measures of partisanship suggest that the country is more divided politically now than it was at any time since the Civil War. I haven't seen the stats about how divided it was at the time of the founding, when James Madison, at least, believed that values like compromise and public reason were really important. But of course, that's before the rise of political parties that the framers are operating in. They didn't anticipate the rise of parties, and they're really afraid of faction, which they defined as any uh, majority or minority that's opposed to the public interest. So I think it's fair to say that it was a different time, and uh, although there were nominees who were rejected uh, during the founding era, uh, some for being... uh, you know, alcoholic and others for being incompetent and, and others for political reasons. Um, this, one thing I think we can say is people are paying a lot more attention to Supreme Court nominations now than they did then. At the time of the framing, here's a good example. Uh, the, the chief justiceship is so unprestigious that a bunch of people turn it down. Basically, President Washington can't convince anyone to stay as chief justice just because all the candidates would rather run for office or, or do something more important. And it took John Marshall uh, as chief to turn the court into the respected and powerful co-equal branch of government that we know today. So the the court played a less central role in American politics. It wasn't as prestigious. It wasn't as established. The power of judicial review or the power to strike down unconstitutional laws wasn't established explicitly until the Marbury and Madison case in 1803. So it uh, it took a while for the court to get up and running, but uh, the process was pretty political from the very beginning. Interesting historical insights from Jeffrey Rosen. Let me move ahead because clearly the White House has a list of uh, potential names who President Trump would nominate if there are future vacancies on the court. So one could argue that if Judge Gorsuch is confirmed, it would not change the dynamics on the court. But what if, as you mentioned earlier, Anthony Kennedy or Ruth Bader Ginsburg were to step down in the next year or two with a Republican president and the Republicans in control of the U.S. Senate? That would change the court a lot. Just speaking descriptively, if Justice Kennedy, for example, were to retire or, or, or certainly one of the liberal justices and were to be replaced by a solid conservative, then instead of a four to four court with Kennedy in the middle, we would have a solid five votes conservative majority. Um, and that could tip the balance on a lot of cases, including Roe v. Wade, which the president has said he wants to see overturned and which uh, he said he thinks would be overturned if he got the chance to make two appointments. So uh, this seat is important, but the balance of the court will not fundamentally change, although Judge Gorsuch does differ from Justice Scalia in some areas. Um, but the next seat is the really nuclear explosion to expect. Do you think Judge Gorsuch could be the new swing vote? Uh, He could if he chose to be more moderate or more willing to compromise with the liberals than Justice Scalia was. And he does have the – he's he's very – I had the 
pleasure of clerking with him on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit many years ago. So just got to know him a bit, and his, his personality is very appealing. And who, who, haven't, who haven't you worked for? <laughs> well, I've just been doing this for so long that, and these are minor, you know, these are youthful jobs in, in small, uh, being, being a sort of zealot at the side of history. But it was cool to be a clerk on the D.C. Circuit. It was wonderful to have the chance to meet uh, Neil Gorsuch then a, a bit. And he is more of a team player than Justice Scalia. He's willing to um, – I could imagine him working with the liberals. I could certainly imagine him winning Justice Kennedy over to the conservative side more effectively than Justice uh, Scalia did. Scalia tended to make fun of Kennedy and just was very sharp in his criticisms. So uh, Judge Gorsuch has the capacity or at least the opportunity to play a really central role on the court, and whether he is inclined to do that is something that the confirmation hearings should explore. If confirmed, we do know that he would be the first black diamond skier on the court in <laughs> modern days. But what was he like? What do you remember about him? Well, I, the skiing is pretty cool, definitely. And I'm, not, I'm trying to remember if he did that then. I wish I had um, endearing and memorable stories. I just remember he was a nice guy. And he, I clerked for Abner Mikva, who was a liberal judge. He was the chief judge at the time. And, and uh, Neil Gorsuch clerked for David Santel, who was a more conservative judge, but he didn't wear his politics on his sleeve. He was uh, friendly, really intellectually open and curious. And he uh, went back to Oxford uh, on a Marshall scholarship to write this book about natural law theory and the right to die, just showing how much he cared about ideas. And I, I don't know, I don't remember if we had any really deep intellectual conversations, but his openness and curiosity to ideas came through even even then. So here's my final question. What do you expect to happen on Monday? What will you specifically be looking for? Monday is the, the warm-up day. Judge Gorsuch made a very brief statement. Um, obviously, it'll be interesting to hear what he says. We, we saw how polished he was in accepting the nomination at the White House, so I'm sure it'll be an effective statement. And then the senators will start their opening statements, and uh, those opening statements tend to be long, uh, but they're worth listening to because they will signal what the senators are planning to focus on in their subsequent questions. So, you know, for citizens who are following the hearings, you don't have to – of course, all of you should watch the hearings on C-SPAN. Of course. And I'm not even sure if you can watch them anywhere else, but C-SPAN is the best place. Uh, But um, the first day you could – maybe read the transcripts afterward of the senator's speeches, but you definitely want to see and hear Judge Gorsuch. Uh, but he testifies on day two, and that's the big day to watch. And then we have to see whether he'll, his questioning will continue into day three, which it may. And then we're going to probably have witnesses on day four. And uh, Senator Grassley says he wants to wrap the whole thing up by uh, day four, so we'll see if that schedule holds. Uh, but Really, the focus of the hearings is on Judge Gorsuch and his answers on Tuesday and maybe Wednesday. So citizens, just listen closely. Don't be impatient. These things take the time that they take. But you only have a few opportunities in a generation to really probe the constitutional views of a nominee. It's the only opportunity we'll ever have to to really hear directly from Judge Gorsuch on his views on the Constitution. So let's all play close attention on C-SPAN and take full advantage of it. Joining us from the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, Jeffrey Rosen. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much. This has been C-SPAN's The Sidebar. Be sure to follow C-SPAN and C-SPAN Radio on Twitter. 
And let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes using the hashtag C-SPAN sidebar. If you like the program, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast player. Every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app for Apple and Android devices, as well as iTunes, Google Play Music, TuneIn, and Stitcher. C-SPAN's The Sidebar, coming soon to a podcast player near you. Thank you for listening.